Thanks for listening to the CISO Diaries podcast. We're Leah. And I'm Sia. And we started this podcast with the intent to give CISOs and cybersecurity professionals a place to be their authentic selves. These are the unedited stories told of how they got into cybersecurity, their real struggles that they persevered through, their personal anecdotes that make them tick, and the leadership advice based on their own experiences. And we want to especially spotlight those that are contributing and giving back to the community apart from their day jobs. This podcast is for everyone, especially if you're a leader or someone aspiring to leadership. Who knows? You may find yourself working with these awesome leaders. So join us on your favorite podcast player. And please don't forget to subscribe, follow, like, and comment and engage in the conversation. And now let's get to know our CISO on our latest diary entry. Oh, yeah. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. We're here with another episode on the CISO Diaries podcast. I'm Leah, and I'm with my co-host, Sia. And we want to do a quick shout out to our sponsor of this podcast, Cyber Future Foundation. They are a global think tank of doers and leaders focused on trying to create a safer and more secure and trusted world. Our special guest today, I'm happy to welcome. He's a mentor. He's highly intuitive. He recently did a compelling talk on Target Acquired at DFW at DFW B-Sides. He's a sneak ambassador, was formerly at Critical Start, which Cyber One recently spun off from them. And currently, he's the CISO at T-Zero Group. Chris, welcome, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. Of course. Hello. So was this, congrats, by the way, on your role at T-Zero. Is this your first CISO role? It is. Uh, it very much is. Um, it was a, a very hard decision for me to leave Critical Start slash Security One. The option and the availability for that role was something that was a goal of mine for a while. And so when uh, when someone reached out and said that that was kind of what they had in mind, you know, someone bring in to be CISO, I kind of had to jump it in. And, and it also was a you know blunt the blockchain fintech related company, which is kind of a personal hobby interest of mine. So it just seemed to kind of line up. So had to make the jump, make the move to the new org, and uh, yeah, yeah. Now I'm get to be responsible for all the things. So, I mean, you can go as far back as you want in terms of your career and getting into cyber, but we, I think we all know it's not, one, a clear and easy path into cybersecurity. And number two, I mean, to even look at saying as, you know, you're starting out in your career and saying, I want to be a CISO someday, what does that look like? I guess, can you share with us, I mean, how did you become the CISO of where you're at now? And, and what was it that got you there? I think yeah. all paths are different. Yeah, so service security is, you know, my second career, really. My first career was in intelligence, and um, it was something I actually really enjoyed. Did it for over 10 years, had a lot of fun, did, you know, meaningful, exciting work overseas. But I was overseas the whole time. And uh, as someone, you know, I learned Arabic at the Defense Language Institute and was basically in the Middle East as much as they could keep me there. And that was fun. It was very exciting. I learned a lot of things, got to, you know, a lot of cool war stories. But, you know, it got to the point where I didn't really have much of a life, no, no work-life balance, you know, working every day, 12 hours a day. And then when there's emergency, which, you know, in war zones seems to happen, you know, all the time, uh, they, you know, you got to work some more. So, you know, when you're, when you're, when I was young, it was really fun and exciting. I got to a point where a little bit more of a balance for work-life. Uh, but while I was doing that, um, towards the end of my career there, you know, getting into systems was a big part of kind of what human turned into. So what I was doing originally was called, you know, human operations, where I was running sources and doing debriefings and interrogations and basically just extracting information from people or getting people to collect information from me. 
And towards the end, it was a lot easier to just kind of train my guys to go, you know, plant keyloggers on stuff or, you know, plant something on the system. We just get the information from the system as opposed to them kind of regurgitating what small amounts of information they could remember or steal or whatever. So that really kind of dawned on me. I kind of had like an aha moment, like, okay, this is where it's at. Like this, this is the new problem. This is the big thing. This is where, you know, this information security thing is where, where our real problem is. And there's going to be a lot more people needed because this is really easy. Like people never get caught, <laughs> you know, we get all the information we want. We don't get caught. So I thought, you know, this is kind of what I want to pivot into. So after I got out, you know, I kind of just hit the books, self-studied, kind of figured out my path to get into it through going back to school with my GI Bill and self-teaching with labs and all the stuff you hear about people breaking into industry doing, you know, just going through courses and Udemy and spinning stuff up and tinkering. Uh, so you know enough of a background, you know, that you can kind of function. Now, the one thing I did get in the military is I did get like basic networking, actually, because one of the things we did in intelligence is we'd set up a local LAN that was secure. And so as like a team leader and, you know, kind of a leader in that, you know, I had to make sure whatever reporting system we set up in a remote location was secure and not just like, you know, some basics. This was you know actually pretty advanced standards that the DOD had. So I already was a kind of, you know, sensitized to this a little bit, but I didn't have any formal, you know, you know, certifications. It wasn't my formal job description. It was just kind of a secondary duty. So when I got out, I just tried to round it out with, you know, more civilian type things that kind of made sense. And, uh, and then went and got my master's and, you know, just kind of did what everyone else was doing, trying to get into business, just applying a lot of jobs and, you know, kind of going with the flow there. Um, I actually took a job before I got into cybersecurity, just basic networking for AT&T and learned, you know, just a lot about networking. It was a really low paying, really crappy job, but I learned a lot. You know, I can make my own Cat5. I can troubleshoot a network pretty easily. So it was a, a good experience that uh, I don't recommend everyone do, do, but it's one of the things I did to kind of, you know, round out my background. And then when I first got my engineering role in cybersecurity, still felt like I knew nothing. You know, I was constantly asking questions and staying late and researching and doing all this stuff. And so it's one of those things where you got to put in the time and the effort kind of early on. And, and then I found that I think my military and intelligence kind of background helped me kind of rise through the ranks a little bit easier because um you know, the, the tech part was stuff I was learning and was getting good at and whatnot, but the making it make sense to the right people was almost more important and come and continues to kind of be an important part of my role. And that's one of the things that I, I think I, again, learned in Intel is this thing called like ground truth, like really knowing what the problem is and being able to articulate it to the right people so that things actually get solved. Chris, I know that you're a mentor to many um, and you're, you know, you've been a force multiplier for new people and getting into cyber. You know, can you share more? And, and in terms of, I think you have some um, very compelling thoughts um, around and your background and experience in terms of, you know, is it a numbers game on certifications? Is it the competencies? Is it really having that self-will and motivation to do all that, you know, self-learning at home, creating your home labs? And what what's kind of your view? And, you know, for those that are trying to get in that you can share and what you've seen work or have mentored in, with others? Sure. So with my with my mentees, one of the first things I do is I've created a mind map that has like all the different stuff you can do in cybersecurity. Now, it's by no means 100 percent comprehensive. I'm sure there's a role or two that just got invented by something that isn't on there. But I have the basics on there and I kind of explain how you can kind of pivot from this. You know, you, you start off as like a security engineer and then you can go kind of architect and you can kind of go to like cloud architect and then you can kind of you know pivot into leadership. You know, this is kind of generic lines so people kind of understand 
some of the decisions they make early on, they don't necessarily box you in, but they have effects on some of the things you can do later on. So if your goal is to be a CISO, then, you know, yes, you can get there from analysts, but analysts isn't probably your quickest path. Starting an engineering path is probably your quicker path. Um, you know, there's slight pay differences between engineer and analyst and whatnot. But, and, but what I want them thinking about is that like, don't just think about, just don't take the first job you get offered. I mean, sometimes you have to, but like, if you have options, think about if I take this job, what can I, what's my next step? You know, what, what can I get to next? What is this, you know, what's this going to train me to do? What experience am I going to gain? That's going to help me along my five year, 10 year, whatever plan. Now, not everyone has that because they don't know. So that's why I kind of bring out this map and kind of give them these ideas and like, well, you can do this and this. And, you know, obviously everyone wants to make a lot of money, but everyone doesn't necessarily understand what some of these second and third tier roles are. So I try and get that in their head so they can start thinking about it and, and kind of, you know, make a plan there. Is this mind map published anywhere? No, it's not. Um, maybe I should, though. Um, and, and maybe what I should do is actually collaborate with a couple other people to make sure it is more comprehensive before I do that. Uh, but it wouldn't be something I mean, I'm, it's, you know, I don't feel like it's something I'm trying to keep from the world. I just hadn't thought about that, I guess, maybe out of you know, shyness. <laughs> no, I love it, though. I love it. So can I ask you this? So couldn't you couldn't it be argued, though, that this map that you would place out, like for the opportunities to look out for, wouldn't that also be a step further of saying, you yourself will carve your own path. You yourself are the one that has to learn how to network to find those different types of opportunities. Yeah, you might be entered. And by the way, Lee and I've heard this all the time. Go start at help desk. Do help desk. And then you can get into cybersecurity or whatever. Yeah, and and, and <laughs> I feel like for sure, if you're an extrovert, which is funny because you're saying extrovert, cybersecurity, I get it. But <laughs> could it be argued though, though that to supplement maybe expand your map is to say, look, these are the steps you do need to take to build your network, to build your community that will support you to grow into different areas. And it's not necessarily the same path. Is that what your map is trying to say? Yeah. It's like a whole bunch of different starting points and, and a whole different kind of, you know, stages depending on what your experience is. So what I, what I do is I gear it a little bit towards the person based on where they are. It doesn't change the map all that much, but it changes how I present it and kind of how I talk to it. Like you're in here, you kind of, you know, you're in this like second tier type thing because you've already done some, you know, networking in the military at some point or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I, I do focus on what they have. So you got to get them to commit to like kind of what they want in some degree. And, th and that's the part that's hard, but you, you got to at least have something. And then you, you sit down and kind of talk with them and you talk about their building blocks and what they have to offer and explain that it's not always technical um, experience that people are looking for. The ability to learn to me is the number one trait I look for because we're in a, we're in a field where like tomorrow, all the tech's different anyway. So the fact that you, pro, you, you know how to do an ASA from 10 years ago, doesn't really mean a whole lot to me because that's not what we're using these days, especially in the cloud. We don't even really use ASAs. We're using like security groups and all these other techniques. So I want people who just have the ability to learn and kind of have that hunger. And that's like the number one thing I look for. So when I'm talking to these young people, I explain ways where like, let's say you don't have a lot of experience where you solve some technical problem, but tell people how you solve the problem. Cause that's what, that's what people are looking for. People come in and solve problems for them, you know, take stuff off their plate. You know, if, especially, you know, most companies are a very small shop. They don't have a lot of people and they want someone to come in and help, you know, er as early as possible too. Um, you, you know, 
people have to be ready to train and mentor them. But if you can come in and you can help on one thing right off the bat, that's going to increase your chance of getting a job significantly. And so that's the other thing I tell them is, you know, look at the company you want to work for, for example. Um, what is it a security vendor? Is it an internal company? Whatever it is, try and figure out what technology they're working with and get some sort of experience with it. You know, whether it's the, their own certifications, the vendor certifications, you know, with tinkering with it, you know, webinar stuff, whatever it is, put some stuff together to say that I can go in and I can do Splunk queries tomorrow. And, and if, if the company you're looking for is running Splunk or if it's Palo Alto or Sentinel One or CrowdStrike, whatever it is, focus on that. Because as much as like Security Plus is great and all these other generic certs, they're really good for like depth of like your experience. What people were looking for is, can you help me solve a problem tomorrow? And that's something in my tech stack that is not configured right or needs to be maintained or needs to be looked at or someone can babysit. So if you can display that, to me, I think that's what really gets people jobs more so than, I mean, Security Plus, yeah, everyone knows that you're supposed to have a password that's long and complicated. But how many people know how to go into a system and set up the policy that makes that mandatory? That's what we really need is the people yeah. who know how to do that. Because if you look at, you know, the, the colonial pipeline and all these ransomware stories, oh, there was an old VPN and the password was by an intern and it was like password one, two, three. Okay, well, the failure there isn't the intern. The failure there is why is your password policy even allow the word password one, two, three? Because someone didn't know how to configure the minimum password requirements back in the day. And those are the people we need. Thank you for all of that. Really, really good. Um, really good insights and, and spot on in some cases. Um, I kind of want to connect some dots and go back a little bit. So oh, yeah. There's a bunch I'm going to tee you up here a little bit, too. So um, you had the career in the military and intelligence, right? And yeah. we talked about data flows. And we know data is really important, especially when you're dealing with those with the technical backgrounds. They need to see the data to understand and to get on board with whatever we're proposing, right? But then one thing I know you have, um, and we've spoken about um, a little bit, is gut instinct and intuition. Everyone has it, right? But I know yours is pretty high. And, you know, I guess just if you can delve into that a little bit more and, and you know, did you always have have it realized that you had it in to the, the degree that you did? Did it come from anything within the military? Did it help you in intelligence? And then just sharing kind of your what you think about that translating into cybersecurity, but knowing we also have to provide data. And yes, I'm teeing you up for your yeah. soon to be whatever you want to announce here or yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really interesting topic that I, I'm really fascinated with. I've been spending some time. I, I actually would have already started my own kind of like short series on this subject, uh, but having some personal stuff go on and I'm kind of in the process of moving around a little bit. I haven't been able to kind of set up shop to do that, but this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart because it is something I've lived through. It's something I live every day where I have this uh, instinct and intuition and kind of, for lack of a better term, I, I feel like I get data from things and from situations at kind of a, a different frequency than most people do. So I, I kind of get to the problem a little bit quicker and I get to understand what, you know, what the fix is a little bit quicker and things like that. And I, and over time, um, again, in the intelligence, this was invaluable because I would kind of, you know, get from A to B pretty quickly and people were still kind of behind and I would have to do a lot of work to kind of get them caught up. Uh, but it, it helped me get a lot of success there and it helped me, you know, deliver intelligence that actually was pretty meaningful. And so it was a, it was a very exciting time in my life where I felt like I was doing like, you know, really solving real world problems. And, and like I said before, I just kind of got tired because it was just so exhausting. Uh, but it, but in cybersecurity, it's not that much different. 
um, because we'll run into these problems and no one really knows what it is. And, you know, and then just by default, I'm one of those people that they kind of send it like, you just go figure it out, Chris. Just tell us exactly what the problem is, what our next step needs to be. And I just kind of, one of those things, I just kind of get in there, start debriefing some people, asking questions, looking at things, looking at log tinkering, and it just kind of, kind of comes to me after a little bit. And I've noticed there's a lot of people like that. And I think it has to do with, we have very, um, very intelligent people in cybersecurity, but also very, uh, very different. I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this without, because this isn't a bad thing. This is just, uh, we have some quirkiness. We have some different personalities. What do you want to call it? Neurodivergent or, or whatever it is. We just have a full spectrum of different kind of personalities that are high on the IQ side, varying on the EQ side. And it creates this kind of like, you know, very like different spectrum of how people see things. And I see a lot of people and I've, I've just noticed a lot of people that kind of just know where to go to look for problems and, and go know where to look for answers. And it's not something that like, you know, is, is like out of a textbook. It's just like, as soon as there's a problem, they're just looking in the right place. And just seeing this over time, you know, I would, you know, you know, I talk to whether it's an architect, an engineer, or even an analyst, like what made you pivot to like this specifically first? Because this isn't really the normal playbook. This isn't like the natural next step. You just kind of knew you needed to go look here. So what was it? And, you know, I hear a lot of things like, you know, it's just kind of that gut instinct that like, I felt like this was where I needed to look, or I felt like something was wrong here. And this is where I needed to look to kind of get the answers. And so I think there's that side of us, uh, especially, you know, within a certain amount of the population that kind of, for lack of a better term, is just kind of a little bit more receptive to kind of, uh, I don't know how to put it, but some of the data that's coming out of the situation and, and it helps us kind of navigate a little bit quicker. So aside from someone who learns really fast and kind of has that hunger, that kind of other quality of kind of getting to the right solution kind of quicker is something I look for. It's very hard to, you can't really ask people questions about that. You just kind of kind of pick up on it. But if you start picking on people that are highly intuitive, that's that's something of quality I, I, I definitely take, you know, try and take advantage of. I think that's a word that we were all talking about, uh, you were saying without saying with intuitive and you just literally like encapsulate in that one, two <laughs> seconds there. It, I argue this many times. I feel like security folks like to solve puzzles. For those that decide to go into cybersecurity, you are a puzzle player. You probably play puzzles, some kind of puzzle in your childhood. You probably like the puzzle type games, right, for your entertainment. And or if you have the ability or option to do other activities that require a puzzle, you're going to go for it, whether you recognize it or not. And I think it goes down to thinking outside the box, regardless of high IQ, low EQ, doesn't matter. I think it's that inquisitiveness but also trusting that gut, that intuition of something's not right here. That to me is a cybersecurity person, which is why I was going to ask earlier, and I think you already answered it. You had mentioned of focusing on like a market or industry to and understanding it. So as in cybersecurity, you'll know the nuances of it. But if you're like a puzzle breaker, puzzle person, do you really have to be beholden to that kind of like, you know, uh, you know, industry? So let's say, you have a cybersecurity professional that was oil and gas. Couldn't they translate those same skills over to finance? Like a company like, you know, in the banking industry, couldn't that be yeah, like the no, same that's, skills? That's exactly how I feel. There are certain people that are just have that, you know, I'll just say gifted or whatever we're going to call it, 
they're just gifted and they, they can just pick it up. And I feel like you can literally put them in most situations and they can be successful. I think the only difference is, is that they have to be passionate about whatever it is they're doing for their true genius to come out. So as long as they're motivated and excited about it, they'll pick it up, they'll learn it and they'll be, they'll master it. Cause you know, like I said, I've worked with, uh, and, and you know, some of these people are, are definitely older than me, but I, I kind of consider them, uh, you know, and they, they're working for me, but like, they're kind of like mentors in a way. Cause they're just seeing how they operate, um, seeing how they take on a brand new, a brand new technology or whatever it is, and they can master it very quickly. And it's because they just have like, you know, like you kind of mentioned that they're just kind of that gifted thing where they understand they're, they're a puzzle, you know, solver. They know how to kind of pick it apart and kind of understand it pretty quickly. Um, and it, and it's just a matter of as long as they're excited about it, they can do it really quickly. And so, yeah, I've, I've had teams where we've had to kind of pivot really quickly on like, okay, uh, we just sold something and it's not even built yet. And we, and we haven't, <laughs> we don't even know how it works. We need to go figure it out. And there's a type of person that like runs into that. Most people are like, okay, I need to cover my ass. This is going to be a failure. I don't want my name on this. I, I don't want anything to do with this. This doesn't look good. And then there's other people that are like, let's go see what we can do. You know, let's, you know, put our hand on backwards and let's go figure this out. And, and when you have a group of people like that, it's actually really fun and exciting. And you, and it's amazing. Some of the things you can achieve, um, you know, when, you know, when you kind of backs against the wall, when you have that, that kind of mindset. So I've, I've been lucky enough to experience that actually a, a fair amount with some people I work with. And it's a really fun experience. Now, Chris, I think it's, I think it's pretty clear what, at least to me, and I think Sia and hopefully others listening that, we could see why you're such a great leader just in terms of what you shared with us today, you know, some of the advice you've given and no doubt that you've been able to rise so quickly into the position you're in now as a CISO and kind of be in that hot seat, if you will. But we know it's also, it's a tough job, right? Being in security and whether, you know, I guess arguably is it tougher than the military, the same, different, right? But there's burnout's a thing. And um, last week I read a few articles that came out on that specifically in cybersecurity. You know, and I don't know if you've, probably experienced in your career before. I definitely have, and I've had to come out of it. But what do you do personally so that you don't get to that point? Or if you do and you're recognizing it, what what things do you do to try to prevent it as much as you can? Um, so there's two things, what I do for myself and what I try and do for like my team. And then I'll kind of elaborate both. So for myself, I work out every morning around 4 or 5 a.m., kind of depending whether it's at the home or at the gym. And I work out pretty hard, <laughs> I'll be honest. And I put myself through what I feel like a really stressful, really arduous to the point where I'm like barely can walk out of the gym in the morning. And then I feel like that's the hardest part of my day. Everything else, again, being in the military, people shooting at you, like seeing worst case scenarios. When I'm in cybersecurity, even when it gets bad, I always have this feeling like, okay, well, no one's trying to kill me, so it's going to be fine. <laughs> you know, like I can handle being yelled at. I've, I've been, you know, I've interrogated terrorists. I've had them threaten my, my life and, and my head's, you know, my, my, my name's been on, like, you know, wanted lists. And like, I've been through bad stuff and made it through the other side. So when it comes to like corporate, you know, life, I've always had this sense of like, this is not a big deal. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff at stake. Don't get me wrong. I, I take it very seriously, but I don't get worked up the way I do, like with some of the stuff I experience because I, I the perspective is like, well, this, this is solvable. We can deal with this. You know, it's going to be, un, it's not going to be fun. Maybe, maybe it's going to be unpleasant, but no one's going to die. No one's going to get hurt. And so when I bring that to the team and that kind of mentality, 
I feel like they feel less stressed because everyone's worried about their job. They're worried about their career. They're worried about if they make a mistake, what happens? And I always make it make it very well known that, first of all, everything is my fault. If something goes wrong, it is immediately my fault because I could have trained you better. I could have equipped you better. I could have had better process in place. I could have better documentation. Whatever it is, there's something I could have done better to like make this mistake not happen. So if there's a failure, it's mine. So you don't need to like walk on eggshells when you're trying to work. Like you have the freedom to to take chances and do things that you think are good. And if it doesn't work out, then it's my fault. And if it works out, be great. And then you get credit. And it allows people to kind of kind of step out of their comfort zone and do a little bit more than they normally would because they're not worried about getting thrown under the bus. Um, but also when things go bad and they're like, oh crap, you know, I did something. We have an outage. This is really bad. I come in and we just like, we're not going to focus on what happened. We're going to focus on fixing this immediately. You know, you do this, you do this. And it's a very calm, like, let's just solve this. And if we solve it quick enough, it's not going to be a big deal. But if it takes us a while to solve it because we're like beating each other up about it, that's going to be the bad scenario. So let's get to a resolution. And then I'm going to go fall on the sword anyway. So just just focus on fixing and everything will be fine. And, and just that kind of comfort, I you know, that kind of relaxed, like it's going to be okay feeling. I've, I've just seen people's like the stress on the shoulders relax when something bad happened. That, okay, this is going to be okay. You know, I'm, I'm going to be okay. My career is going to survive. My job's going to survive. No one's going to be mad at me. I, you know, we're going to talk about how to fix this, but it's not going to be like this stressful situation that they're expecting. And that, and if, if you can reduce those, then you're going to get ahead of the burnout because you get a lot of those you go into your weekends upset with yourself. You're beating yourself up. Your free time is not free because you're ruminating over things like that. So if you can reduce the amount of stuff like that, then the, the burnout's going to be a little bit better. Then when it comes to the burnout piece, you got to comp people for their time. You got to make sure that they know when they do a good job. You got to make sure you're giving them good feedback all the time. One of the things I learned in the military is you sit down and you, you counsel people right when they come in, like, what are your goals? What do you want to do? What do you want to achieve? And we set up a plan. Like your goal is to be an engineer by next year. Right now you're an analyst, whatever it is. Um, and then we're going to have all these things that you need to do to get there. And during the year, we're going to talk about these things and where you are with that. And it's not a critique. It's a, it's a, hey, you know, you wanted to get to this. And because these things come up, you're behind on this. But if you do this, you can still get there. So let's, let's, let's give you some time to do that. And just having that kind of, I don't know, that collaborative nature on getting to where they want to be keeps them keeps them very motivated, you know, because it's because they're making progression. They're, they're building towards something. It's not all for naught. When you put people in a job and your job is to just sit there and do the same thing over and over again, and there's really no light in a tunnel, there's no, really no chance of advancement, there's no chance to like build and get something more, like that's when burnout like really becomes happening because it's like, what am I doing this for? What's the purpose? So you got to give them like legit, not, and this isn't like this, this isn't like a, a manipulative thing. This is like a real thing because you really have to care about these people about their future and like getting them to the next step because that's what everyone, you know, that's what makes people really feel good about themselves, you know, is when they feel like they're developing, when they feel like they're getting better at things, when they feel like they're achieving things. And so if you, if you line up a lot of those, it kind of counteracts some of the negative things that happen when we do have a bad day. And then if someone, you know, even with all that, you can still get burned out because it's just a stressful job and, and there's things that are out of control. Customers can be a handful these you know vulnerabilities can be a handful so you got to give people time you gotta you gotta put them you know you know what you've been working really hard you're gonna go work on this other project that's a little bit more low-key right now because you need to like go code in a room by yourself for a couple hours and just kind of chill out and have some new time so you got to make sure you're not you know your, your go-to guy can't be your go-to guy all the time you know right 
you know, cause, cause that's one thing, you know, how many organizations lean on like one or two people to do all the work. That's very common, right? So you got to sit down with that person and be like, Hey, what can we do to get more people involved to take stuff off your plate? You know, is it, you know, and it's not, Hey, you have to train everyone. Cause that's just one more thing on their plate. You got to figure out, well, what can we do? Like, what can they do? You know, what, what can they actually take off your plate without you having to do work to help them help you? You bring up such a great point because I think security in general is such a thankless job. It's a thankless career. It's a thankless field. I mean, and I've said this before, how many times has a security department ever gotten a thank you of, hey, I didn't get hacked today. You yeah. know, no one ever yeah. gets those thank you emails, right? It's only when, you know, things hit the fan that you guys now suddenly get dumped on of, of what do you guys do all day kind of thing. So you, you mentioned something, usually the top performers, because they deliver, because they're consistent, they tend to naturally get a lot of work put on them because they've been able to deliver. How have you tracked as a leader, the performance and the amount of workload your team has, do you have like a spreadsheet? Is it intuitive? Like, how do you balance that to make sure the team is actually still balancing and versus, you know, you got someone that's an Atlas carrying the team? Yeah. So um, right now it's a little bit less informal in, my, in this role because um, the metrics we have are a little bit less mature than my last org, but I'll use critical starters example. We had a very mature metrics. We were tracking a lot of different things. We spent a lot of time collecting data on a lot of aspects of what we do, you know, whether it's tickets or, security incidents or projects, uh, tying it back to revenue. I mean, we, just, we had a lot of really mature metrics and it's not the end all be all, but I had metrics showing the amount of work. And this isn't like, you know, hours spent on the job. So it wasn't like we were doing big brother stuff with checking the computer, but just the amount of time they're spending on tickets and then the, the projects they were on and then the projects and then the projects that are completed on time and all those things, all those metrics really kind of showed pretty clearly who was doing their work, but also doing it kind of in an efficient manager versus people that would constantly have kind of delays or whatnot. And the main purpose was to kind of remove roadblocks and, and you know, see where we had inefficiencies in the process. I mean, that's the goal of those metrics. It's not really to necessarily measure the people involved, but what you end up seeing is a pattern of, of certain, you know, teams or people that are just not as efficient on something. And so that's something where you say, okay, the problem is in the process here, this is just, we don't have the same skills. We need to maybe do some more training or we need to maybe change this team around. So it's a little bit more balanced or something like that. So I've, I've been, I was pretty lucky that while I was coming up, you know, between director and VP, I had really good metrics to work with. And my new org were kind of really in the process of doing that. My team is actually smaller um, than what I had at Google Start. So it's a lot more manual for me to kind of look at my team and kind of do some of that. But again, we have got Jira, you know, we've got all these things and I, and I actually keep it clean and updated. So it's not like this hot mess. And, and just with that, I, you know, I, I get at least a sense of fairness on, on how many people are working on tickets and closing tickets and opening up tickets and doing some activities. I will say I do have one person there that keeps taking on like a lot of responsibility, you know, you, you know, even when I'm not asking for it, he's just kind of taking on tasks. So I constantly have to tell him like, nope, you're just going to take the day off tomorrow. Like you don't have to do any of that. You know, teach me how to do it. I'll do it. <laughs> That's just silly admin work. So I've, I've been lucky where I have people who work for me who are like really, really motivated. I mean, that's not always the case. Um, but you have to actually protect themselves from themselves sometimes, especially when they're early in the career. They're trying to make their mark, trying to prove themselves. They're trying to show their worth. They want to, you know, they want to speed up the process of getting from A to B. And you kind of have to explain to them that 
Um, it's better to deliver everything on time in the right way and have everyone's expectations met than to agree to everything and then kind of slowly and you know across the board not necessarily meet the expectations even by a little bit on all of those. And I was like, I know it, it seems like you're doing the right thing saying yes to everyone, but what, what, what no one remembers is the ones you delivered on time because that's just the expectation. They only remember the thing you were late on. So don't put yourself in a situation where you're, you're creating that environment for yourself. You know, let, you know, we have, that's when we have to spread it out so that every, everything can be done on time in a reasonable manner and you don't have to take a hit on it, even though it's still, you know, even a reasonable excuse. So that's a little bit of human nature. You kind of have to, you know, with, with I would say younger people who are still trying to make their mark, you know, make sure that they're not shooting themselves in the foot by overcommitting and under delivering. Yeah. It's an easy thing to do too. Um, well, yay for metrics, having that in place for clean, updated, and motivation. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, I, I have a question for you because I it more from, I think, awareness, right? Because I don't know that I've talked to a single person in cybersecurity or at the CISO level who has not been able to answer this. It, and, you know, it's it's real. But I'd say on a scale of 1 to 10, and keeping it in the context of kind of our jobs and what we see every day, how where are you on the fear factor? the fear level or being scared from a scale of one to 10, honestly. Uh, because of the current exploits or just in general? In general, with not just the current one, everything, right? Everything we've been seeing since even last year. I think I'm a little bit different because I, it's not that I'm more optimistic. I just, things have worked out well for me. <laughs> so maybe I just haven't been burned bad enough yet, but I, I, I don't focus on the, that, that part as much. So I would say I'm probably on the low end of that scale. And that's only because I try and take my energy instead of worrying about things as being proactively kind of working on things so I don't have to worry about it maybe. So on a scale of one to 10, I would say I'd probably hover around a three in any given point, but that's kind of a choice. You know, I, I, I definitely have, I have times where I have to remind myself to relax and I could probably creep up to the five, six, sevens and higher in a certain incident. Uh, but I feel like that's at, at least, it, you know, in a leadership position, it's not helpful. If you're, if you're spending all your time worrying about things, um, that's taking a brain cycles that you could be fixing things and proactively looking at things and, and you should be bringing a sense of calm, you know, not, not, not as like a tactic because it's just like, that's really part of your job is to keep everyone calm and focused on, on you know, for lack of a better term, the mission. <laughs> and if you're up there, you know, worried and whatever, you're just going to kind of spread that around. So I would say, as much as I would understand why everyone would be kind of at a high right now, just because of the, the year we're having with just everything kind of being vulnerable all the time, I still stay I would probably at like a three because I choose to kind of focus on, you know, my whatever energy I have on, on being more proactive than kind of sitting there worrying, I guess. I like that. It's different perspective from what I've heard. So thank you. It's good perspective too. Well, okay, Chris, it's been a pleasure having you share so much great information and just learning more about you and yourself. And, you know, I don't know if you're hiring, but I could see why people would be gravitated towards you and your style. If anyone wants to reach out to you, where can they find you? Twitter right now is probably Twitter or LinkedIn are probably the two better options. Um, LinkedIn, just, you know, Christopher Russell at T0 for um, for Twitter. It's Krooster, C-R-0-0-S-T-E-R. Um, you'll mostly see my workouts in the morning with a little bit of cybersecurity. Unfortunately, yeah. in the blue team, we can't like post a whole lot of cool cyber uh, stuff because it 
Yeah. Like the red yeah. team, like, oh, another exploit, another pwn, another right. you know, domain admin. Us were like, I'm not going to tell people why they're fixed. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> for them. So it's not as much cybersecurity as I'd like on my Twitter. It's mostly me working out in the morning, but but you can definitely reach me there. Awesome. Well, again, we really enjoyed having you. We want to have you back again. There's more to chat about. But in the meantime, thanks for coming and and chatting and sharing so much great information. And we're uh, excited to keep following you on your journey and see where you, where the world takes you next in, uh, dare I say, 2022 and beyond. <laughs> and beyond. Yeah. Well, thank you so much very much. Thank you so much. I, I, I'm sorry, I got distracted with and beyond. That just messed me up a little bit. But uh, on that note, you guys, I think we should go ahead and wrap this up for another episode of the CISO Diaries entry. Bye.